Hello, fellow time travelers. I am Sasha from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I am Skip from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I'm Brooke. We're the Fiction Paradox, the only podcast dedicated to the BBC Books 8th Doctor Adventures in the whole world that we know of. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy, Enjoy your, your travels. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them or even collect the hardcover editions or maybe the Pinnacle American Editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travellers, I'm Nick Briggs and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the acute task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. Ignore me, I have no idea what I'm saying anymore. I At least I didn't say isosceles task because that really would have made no sense at all. That actually would be very funny, I think. Oh, well, <laughs> I should have said it then. Uh, my name is Tony Whit, and today we have a similarly acute four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert, who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. We also have our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch-Safried. Hello, Allison. Good evening. And finally, we welcome back our resident expert on all things involving pyramid schemes, the glamorous <laughs> Jenny Ingersoll. Hello, Jenny. I don't know. You're really... Um painting me quite well i'll have to get get back on my herbalife horse and sell you some avon um glad to be back glad to scam you don't get me started on my family's own history with amway okay because you really don't want to hear that 
Yeah. <clears throat> well, if you like what you're hearing, though I can't imagine why you would, please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them. Just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you've built your own pyramid to house them all. <laughs> Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. See, I was ready for one that time. <laughs> and as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, and Guy Lambert. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. It's getting to the point where I can't do that in one breath anymore. <laughs> That's a great problem to have. Breathe more. Yes, exactly. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We start off what we hope will be a happy new year, or at least a happier new year, with our discussion of Terrence Dick's novelization of The Pyramids of Mars. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Pyramids of Mars, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Robert Holmes and Louis Griefer, published by Target Books in December 1976. As of this recording in December of 2020, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 125 pages. This story is credited to a Stephen Harris which is a compromise between scriptwriter Louis Griefer, I think it's Griefer, it might be Griefer, I'm not sure, and editor Robert Holmes, who substantially rewrote the script. Griefer was commissioned to write a script based heavily on the Hammer Mummy movies, which ties in with the theme of the whole season of revisiting old sci-fi and horror tropes. Griefer's original script called for the Egyptian god Sebek to attack a conference on food reserves at which a new form of grain that could grow on the moon is being unveiled. For some reason, Sebek wants to replace it with a grain that will destroy the moon and wreak havoc on Earth. Oh, and in that script, Sarah is just called Jane, and the brigadier would possibly have been killed. Did young Ben Carson write that script? <laughs> well, you know. Ben Carson probably would have known more about Doctor Who, because apparently that was the problem. Griefer didn't know as much about Doctor Who as Robert Holmes hoped that he would. Holmes met with Griefer to rewrite everything. Griefer turned in the first episode, then he got sick for several weeks, and when the final three episodes came in, it was clear that Holmes would have to write the whole story over again from scratch. So technically, this is a Robert Holmes script. And as we already know from previous episodes, Terrence Dix tends to give special care to anything written by Robert Holmes, which may be why this novelization is uh, <clears throat> slightly better than most. Mm -hmm. All but two of the actors in the guest cast had been on the show before, and one of those two had a connection to the two movies from the 1960s, because he was the father of the actress who played Susan. The most notable guest actor here, though, is Gabriel Wolfe as the voice of Sutek, a character he would play again in seven different audio dramas, some of which were even produced by Big Finish. They're not all produced by Big Finish. That's the amazing part. Will we be reading seven novels? About no. That? God, no. no. I was about to submit my resignation. No, 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 we will not. He also voiced the Beast in the new series two-parter The Impossible Planet and The Satan Pit, based directly on this part. 
And most amusingly, he provided the voice for Sutek in a DVD extra for this story, featuring Sutek being interviewed about his career after Doctor Who in a short called Oh Mummy, Sutek's Story. This is the real plaything of Sutek. His name's Neil. Neil. Neil before the might of Sutek. So he does survive. Well, no, no, no. In in universe, he doesn't. In the DVD extra, he did. Because in the DVD extra, Sutek is just another actor. He just happens to be the Egyptian god of death. So, you know, multitasking. Um, One more thing about the story. In the Doctor Who magazine poll in 2014 to determine the best stories of the entire series, this story came in eighth. Oh, wow. So it's well regarded. It's very well regarded. Yep, hopefully we'll think the same way about the novel, but we'll we'll see. Uh, Let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Who is willing to do it? (laughs) Jenny hasn't done it in a long time. Make her do it. I actually did it last time that I was on, but I'll I'll do it again. (laughs) For many thousands of years, Sutek had waited trapped in the heart of an Egyptian pyramid. Now, at last the time had come, the moment of release, that's sexy, when all the force of his pent-up evil (laughs) and malice would be unleashed upon the world. The TARDIS land on the site of unit headquarters in this year, 1911, and the Doctor and Sarah emerged to fight a terrifying and deadly battle against Egyptian mummies, half-possessed humans, and the overwhelming evil power of Sutek. Very good. Sutek sounds like an herb you would buy at a co-op. Like, <laughs> oh, I'm getting rashes. I need Sutek. Like, I don't... I, now that I'm saying it, um, maybe there's something that's lost in our, like, white people pronunciation. I don't know. Uh, my STDs are flaring up. I need to take some Sutek. Or instead of poison sumac, there's poison ivy, poison oak, and poison Sutek. Poison Zutek, yeah. <laughs> my, con- my friend and I had a concept of starting a hyperallergenic products business for when you have house guests you would like to get rid of. So, like, there was a hyperallergenic pillow stuffed with chicken feathers and cat hair and a hyperallergenic essential oil. So, it was essentially poison ivy, poison oak, poison sumac, and perhaps some poison Zutek to be added to the blend. Yeah. Well, if all life is indeed your enemy, that's exactly the sort of product you would have. He to could come have up just with. done a pyramid scheme. Yes. This is essentially yes. oil. Yes. Yes. All life. <laughs> Instead of called Herbalife, just call it end of life, and that's yes. where we'll <laughs> perfection. Oh my god! Like an anti-life oh. equation, but like the knockoff, so he doesn't get sued. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to ask the question: Where do you want to start with this? <laughs> First impressions. Let's let's start there. Jenny, your first impressions of this. As last time, and I, you know, maybe if I had had a better memory, um, but we, we did jockey around which book I was going to participate on next. But as soon as I saw that it was another Dick's book, I, <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm so excited because I really enjoyed the writing style of the last one. And again, this one didn't disappoint. I have a little note taking system where if I like something, I put a star next to it and my notes are just full of stars. There's so few things that I had a qualm with about this and so many things that I thought were delightful. So I felt really um, grateful to to be able to read this one. And my first impressions are really good. 
Okay. Allison, your first impressions? That's interesting because there's been a run of going on a year of books that I have mostly really liked. There have been a couple I haven't, but a lot of them that I've really liked. And this is just garbage to me um, <laughs> in comparison. So, um, Wow. That, well, sorry. I, <laughs> my, my first impression looking at it was that I thought I was looking at a space suit rather than a mummy. Well, ah. And then the uh, Sarah with the rifle is more of a classic Western rifle aiming at people pose. She's doing her best Annie Oakley. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, rifle aiming at people pose is not the technical term, but um, it's, it's a classic stench. Uh, so I, I think I was a little at first confused about, okay, so pyramids, Mars, spaceman, Western. I, I think I immediately wasn't sure what to expect. I guess I didn't okay. think about uh, talking about my impressions of the cover. Um, I, too, was a little disarmed by the doctor's disembodied floating head. But I at least was like, hey, Sarah looks badass. That's nice. And then we have this well, mummy she wasn't disarmed. with, like, this very sexy small waist that I was like, I don't really know what to make about this guy um, with, like, his sort of weird duck-looking head. Um, it's interesting. Interesting guy. Interesting little, like, loincloth-esque suit he has. Um <laughs> <laughs> but like uh, buff bee peak beekeeper kind of yeah yeah but i i also was like well that's an interesting cover but i think it was an improvement on the last one where the doctor really was poorly drawn um oh. if we remember that <laughs> so much so yeah planet, of, planet evil. of evil yeah yeah exactly dalton your first <laughs> impressions i was one of those kids that was just extremely fascinated with Egypt. You know, I always loved reading about the pyramids and the tombs and booby traps that were placed there and all the treasures and things like that. So I was really excited <laughs> about the idea of the doctor uh, dealing with some Egyptology. Oh. Yeah, the fact that it kind of takes cues from, uh, was it Chariots of the Gods? That's the, mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the Egyptian gods are actually just aliens. was kind of a little uh, off-putting still still fun yeah and and the cover this mummy is a, a lot beefier than any any mummies <laughs> i i've ever uh, seen but yeah I, w I was excited for this one hmm. okay well I, I do have a story about why the mummy's chest is shaped that way or rather what the shape of that chest allows them to do in the televised story which thank god they don't actually do in the book but we will talk about that yeah where should we start first of all we have a prologue and we have an epilogue and we haven't had one of those in a long time almost two prologues we have the prologue of the gods and the imprisonment of, I'm going to say Set because I keep forgetting how to say Sutek and I think I'm saying it wrong. Uh, and then we, uh, then we have the prologue in the tomb. I guess, I guess I'm counting everything as prologue before a doctor actually shows up. Oh, I see what yeah, you're saying. That yeah. makes sense. Did we like having that information from the start or, or would you have preferred to have just been thrown into it without knowing who Sutek was or... And here's the other thing. On screen, they're called Osirens. In the book, for some reason, they are called Osirians, but that's hard to say. Yeah, I was, I mulled that over, Tony. I was like, Osirians? I, Osirians yeah. was hard. Yeah, because they're, they're named after Osiris, yeah. so probably Osiris would make more sense. But would, would you have felt better just 
not knowing all of that before going in, or does the prologue serve a good purpose for this book? For Dick's books, the prologue is often my favorite part. Agreed. I think it was for this one. He, he usually does terrific little, little prologues. Often you, you tell us later that something was not on screen in any way. So I'm curious to know how much of this was revealed at the beginning of the episode. But I at first thought it was going to be nicely thematic for December and January because it was going to be uh, the Grinch in space. But then his, his great Grinchy trick was genocide of the Who's and leveling Mount Crumpet, kind of, and then destroying all else he could. So it was a little heavier than the Grinch. Uh, but I actually uh, thought, it, I thought that the best part of the book was this thought that he saw other life and intelligent life forming and his first thought was to fear that it might destroy him rather than mm -hmm. enjoying the idea of company or even enjoying the idea of worshipers who would grow to adore him that he anything else that could possibly ever approach him would be some sort of zero-sum game I thought was kind of an interesting dark thought yeah it's kind of like Thanos but without wanting to keep half of the universe safe for however many people he took out in the universe but Thanos is in some ways altruistic he thinks yeah. that he is improving the health of the vine by pruning branches said is just nervous in a destructive way in a way that I thought was kind of interesting and haunting and I thought of different people who might sort of fit that description but then yeah. by the end of the prologue I decided <laughs> that Horace is sort of a Bond villain type uh, prison warden because he just can't keep his mouth shut oh by the way there's a way out you'll have to work <laughs> super hard but it wouldn't be a fair game if I didn't tell you, if I didn't make a way out and then tell you about it. And I thought that kind of, I felt like it hit the high point and then started a trajectory downwards on that first or second page. Third page, sorry. The information is given later in the story, but it's essentially the same information you get in the book. Everything that Dix is doing with this prologue, I believe this is why I think it's there, is to explain a few things that are probably not explained all that well. In fact, for years, and this is something I, I shudder to admit to, having watched this story since late 70s, early 80s, I did not realize that Sutek's prison was in Egypt on Earth and that the pyramids of Mars themselves were the control point for it. Because it somehow passed me by every single time I watched the story. And this is one of my favorite stories. And for some reason, that simple fact passed me by. And Dick seems to have looked at the script and said, oh yeah, that needs clarification. So the prisons on Earth, the control point is the pyramids of Mars on Mars. So that's why they have to go to Mars and have that strange thing going on. And it also explains why it's possible to escape because... Horus doesn't want to be as cruel to his brother as his brother is to every single other living creature in the <laughs> universe, which is just strange. But it's not supposed to be punishment for him to be in prison. It's supposed to be protection for the rest of the universe. So that's, it did not somehow set up for me. Haha, <laughs> you're right there. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes, like, all of the different places they go in these stories, um, I know it's supposed to be like gallivanting and such, but it can be a little bit muddled. But at least this time I thought, oh, they needed to have that one point of action take place on Mars and him be imprisoned on Earth so they could have their little two minute conceit at the end of it. That like, oh, because yeah. of time, this is why we can do that. And 
given that the story was so dramatically building up to that point, like something that <laughs> this sounds dark or something I really liked about the story is just how easily it's able to kill all these people that we really kind of care about. I was genuinely upset when Ernie died. I was like, fuck mm-hmm. you. Like this, I missed, <laughs> I'm so sad. Ernie was such a great guy. Ernie and was a great character. I agree. He was dynamic. He felt bad about being a poacher. He was like, oh, you know, all of a sudden he felt empathy with those little animals he had killed. And I was like, that's amazing, right? And they didn't even know that Ernie was out there trying to do all this good. And it was his, you know, explosive stuff that really helped one part of the story too. Like RIP Ernie, um, pouring out. So like, it was one of my favorite things that they actually were willing to fell all these characters that I really cared about. And then they were able to kind of frame this epic ending because of that little time hiccup thing. Um, So I I liked Mm -hmm. that actually. It needed to be that kind of epic in order to cap off the tensions and well I did this and you bet I didn't think I was going to do that well I killed Lawrence I bet you didn't think I was going to do that like they needed to to end it with that kind of bang I think for it to work yeah it really does end up being a bloodbath doesn't it (laughs) at one point the doctor says when Sarah says a man's been murdered the doctor says five men Sarah six if you include Professor Scarman himself, which is something that Dix corrects because on screen, the line is four men, Sarah, five if you count uh, Professor Scarman himself, which means that the doctors lost count in there. There have been so many deaths in it, but it really does have this effect of everything's very claustrophobic. Yeah. They're trapped. They're trapped in this one space. Everybody in it is going to die. And that's a microcosm for the rest of the Earth and then the rest of the universe dying if they don't do something about it. I like that in the epilogue, they actually acknowledged the the bloodbath, like you said, that it just preceded. And often we get an ending kind of like that uh, acclaimed film, Romeo Must Die, wherein our, our couple goes off smiling hand in hand after like their entire families have just died in the previous two weeks. Like, a lot of times we get a wrap up where we're off to the next adventure and not there's not much acknowledgement that the whole supporting cast is dead. So it was actually nice at the yes. end to, to have that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's new to the book too, because Dix put that in and I think it's brilliant. One of the few things that I kind of irks me about it, why did they end up back in England? Like, it, why did they ever need to go? Was well, it for the scientific if, equipment? If, I never. If, if, yeah, exactly. Why did they need a country estate? If, if Sutek needed to build a rocket to go to Mars to free himself from this prison, why wouldn't he just build it in the middle of nowhere in Egypt where he already was? Mm. And did they need the brothers for their knowledge, maybe? Like to have. Because one of the brothers already had mummies on hand, but no, then they shipped the mummies in. Do they already have some mummies? Well, they transported them. He already had some collection of Egyptian items, and his brother is a scientist with some equipment. Maybe. I I also might be very slow on the uptake, but I had the same question. Why do they need the country estate? I can give you what I think is the explanation in story, and I can give you the real-world explanation. (laughs) The explanation, I think, in story, even though Dix does not fill this plot hole, and you're right, it's a big old plot hole, there's no reason for them to come back to England for this all this to happen is that possibly they can only shoot the rocket from that point on the planet to reach mars properly it could very well be that it's just a matter of you know how nasa has to make sure that the weather conditions are just right and this goes this way and this goes this way though that that brings up another question 
you cannot tell me that the weather conditions in England are better <laughs> than the weather conditions are in Egypt. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so it is, you're right. It's a big sticking plot hole. These are the things that, when the writing is fine, I'm like, well, look, we're talking about replacing Egyptian gods with aliens, and <laughs> we have a Time Lord and a scarf that can apparently jump out and grab a gun if it's following the Doctor's will or something. I, I kind of, <laughs> at that point, don't quibble with things like that. But I'm glad you brought that up, Dalton, because of any weakness of the story, I had wished that we were in a more kind of lush or interesting locale for the majority of it instead of stuck inside of a house. And I am interested, Tony, in what you say about trying to build a an atmosphere of maybe claustrophobia or being trapped like yeah. the people on Earth. And that's a great idea. I think that they could have made that work. But I would have expected then there to be maybe more specific pointing towards, oh, the labyrinthine halls of this manor or you know, using more kind of hints about that, that they felt trapped or they were confused or lost. And I just didn't get very much of that. Mostly I was like, okay, they're like in a house and they're right. running around in a forest for a second or like this gamekeeper shed compared to the other places where we get to go, which are usually these kind of fabulous, interesting settings or like the, the planet of evil. That was such a atmospheric and interesting kind of place to be this one did fall short for me a bit well i think the real world explanation may have a hand in all of this there are a couple of reasons why it's not set in egypt one the bbc budget just won't stretch to taking a team to egypt two they probably couldn't achieve egypt quite as well in the studio though <laughs> turns out tom baker did play an egyptian alongside maggie smith in a film about three years before this, and the BBC did indeed do it in the studio, but I think it had a higher budget than this. There's also the fact that, remember, this season is when they're trying to recreate classic horror and sci-fi movies. Planet of Evil is a recreation of Forbidden Planet, and they do a very good job in the studio of recreating, you know, a planet. What they've done here, though, is they're redoing the Hammer version of The Mummy, and the story behind The Mummy is always got this weird imperialist slant to it that English Egyptologists go to Egypt, rob the tombs, uh -huh. bring all their stuff back to England, and that's where the curse of the mummy destroys them all because they have desecrated a tomb. You know, that's a really good point. And I noticed that right at the beginning that I was like, this is point for point a scene from, um, what, when was the Brendan Fraser mummy released? I don't know. Oh, or something. Um, yeah. 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 There is, I specifically remember a moment where they're getting ready to go inside of there and the little ratty looking guy says, it's the curse, the curse of the mummy. And he runs away. And then some <laughs> guy says, stupid, superstitious bastard. And then like jabs yep. in the crowbar. And I was like, wait, this is exactly like what that is. And there's even, That's you know, exactly. he's even wearing a fez and the other guy has his Egyptologist clothes on and whatever. And that's really, thank you for reminding me about their, um, you know, impetus to redo these classic movies, because that makes a lot of sense then. Yeah. There's also another very pressing real world reason. It is because they got the rights to use Mick Jagger's house oh. <laughs> for the location work. Okay. And so it had to be the sprawling English manner. In fact, they'll use it again 
in a couple stories. Oh, actually a few stories later on, but they'll use it again because that house is beautiful. But it's exactly the sort of setting for classic British horror movie like this to find essentially evils of the universe coming to a homey setting like England and making it come home for the, the viewer and thinking, okay, what if the world had ended in 1911? What would happen to us? And we get an answer there. So what I've got written down under prologue two is two bullet points. Bullet point one, first scene, a fez. <laughs> bullet point <laughs> number two, trope that the dark-skinned local is cowardly and superstitious because he has a non-Christian religion. Yet he's also correct to be afraid and the trope that the white westerner is hot-headed and godless. Which is... Yes. <laughs> well, don't forget that the laborers are half-naked. It's not just well, yeah. that they chose to dress in, like, comfortable clothing. They're half-naked. Well, it's always an interesting sort of double contempt in this trope mm-hmm. that, yes, that, that the, the the brown people are always seen as cowardly and superstitious, but they're also correct. Yeah. They don't really get any credit <laughs> for it. But... I guess maybe what left such a bad taste in my mouth is the extreme orientalism with Namine because there's usually a sort of uncomfortable moral underpending to this trope that the British Egyptologist is looting for science and culture. <laughs> um, but, right. but, but, but is, on the one hand, uh, uh, bringing home prizes. On the other hand, is doing it with an attitude of, I am bringing home these objects for cultural and scientific and historic study but that there is a price attached to that mm-hmm. although we usually only see the price to the british people as opposed to any kind of repercussions for grave robbing um so this is going to sound so profound i read a tweet recently um, about the supposed <laughs> fifth theoretical fifth upcoming indiana jones movie where someone was saying in the timeline of that universe if it's 40 years later it's now deep into the 70s and in 1970, oh, there was a UN convention about repatriation of cultural artifacts, and it's going to be about Indiana Jones being tried <laughs> <to make>. <laughs> <laughs> and forced <laughs> to identify all the different objects at different museums and where they ended up. Indiana Jones and the massive lawsuit. Oh, his characters always come to bad ends, don't they? But the thing, <laughs> so the thing that's missing here about that sort of interesting moral situation that we usually have in this trope where on the one hand we have usually an American or or British or certainly Anglophone hero on the other hand they have plainly unleashed literal demons upon the earth and themselves is here they have an Egyptian doing it and he is a really interestingly queasy mix of pre-Abrahamic polytheistic religion and then some modern Muslim mar- markers where on the one hand he mm-hmm. is barbaric because he practices this ancient religion. On the other hand, he is created to conform to sort of modern stereotypes of a Muslim and it's, it's this very weird person who doesn't exist, who is named Ibrahim and refers to the local English villagers as infidels, but also worships a variety of ancient pre-Abrahamic gods. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's lots of uncomfortable stuff about him speaking in a sibilant voice and hissing like a snake, yes. and that he has cat-like movements. So he's very feminine amino- and gender-bendy like, in a way that's supposed to be unwholesome. He's yeah, lithe, and but he's, he's also like, incredibly strong. Made to be an animal. It's just interesting the variety of conflicting ways in which we're told that he is gross and wrong. Yes. In a way that I'm not sure there's any one person who has these characteristics, but he's the one who unleashes the curse. 
here on England. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I found so kind of gross. Well, it's done in the Hammer movie, if I remember correctly. In fact, I think the character that he is playing a version of was played by the actor who played Klieg in Tomb of the Cybermen. So you have another actor of color playing a character who is doing this horrible thing. Interestingly enough, on screen, it's not an actor of color. (laughs) That'll be interesting, but it's not surprising. Yeah, not surprising at all. I mean, he's not, as they say, a black top, but he is playing sort of cod foreigner that British actors do for this sort of part. I know this is 1976, but I think part of what struck me is sort of the the kicker for me, why it struck me so off is the order of priests is supposed to be guarding the devil, essentially. Yeah. So the things that they do, they're supposed to do. I mean, he does perpetrate a small massacre here. Theoretically, they are doing it to continue to save the universe. And the fact that he is portrayed as not just evil because he's possessed, but sort of sneaky and evil of his own volition because he's one of the priests just seemed very off to me. Um, protecting the universe. Well, the, keeping, uh, they're, they're, they're guarding the, um, they're guarding set and keeping him in, I thought. Oh, I thought it was just the opposite. I thought that they were followers of his cult, and it was a cult of death, and they wanted to bring death upon the Oh, maybe the I completely misunderstood. No, no, you're I right, Allison. He's supposed there. to be the cult of people that are like the, the people who are living into the future who are trying to keep Sutek kept in. But he got tricked because, and Avon wrote a note about this, that he was like, oh, instead, you know, he was so excited because he finally was getting some orders and it was it was Syrians where, oh, the plans have changed. Now Sutek was supposed to come out, which is it's tricky yeah. because that's that is what they said. But so it's yeah. not actually I, I think they just tricked him. So he thinks he's doing this all like for the right reasons. Although I think, Allison, you're absolutely correct that it's like, uh, wouldn't he kind of at some point question that? Like, hmm, I'm actually doing the opposite of what my people and this order have told me to do for the last a million thousand years. What's going on with that? And yet he oh, doesn't. Oh, my God. God, you're right. You know what it is? I have to apologize. I'm so used to the TV story that when I got to the backstory of Namin, I probably skimmed it and didn't realize that it is in there. You're absolutely right, both of you. No that worries. In the book, that's what Dix is doing. He's, at first, Namin had been very puzzled by these orders and the secret writings of his cult. It was laid down that the pyramid must never be broken into or the most terrible disaster would overwhelm the world, which turns out to be true. But Sutek, the great one within the pyramid, had told him the writings were mistaken. The pyramid was a prison in which he had been cast by treachery thousands of years ago, which also happens to be true. Now the time was approaching for his release. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay. I did enjoy the description of his evil organ recitals. Yeah. And, <laughs> well, each of the three, each of the first three chapters, we have a description of they always use some version of like a crashing discord from an enormous organ. They always use discord and organ in a way that you, well, I think it, it does a really good job of bringing the presence of Set into the story without explicitly naming him. I, I yes. like that as a device. Yeah, yeah. But then that kind of was abandoned. Yeah. I'm not sure if he brought the organ. I'm curious to know if he brought the organ with him within his hall or it came with the house. I do, that's a good question. It probably was in the house, come to think of it. But the thing about that organ thing, about the organ trope, 
is that it exists kind of in the story. It at least lets us know when, you know, Sutek is ready to send Garmin down the tunnel of death or whatever it is. Yeah, I thought it was some kind of means of communication between them or communion. I guess he's not, so. He's not possessed quite like the archaeologist is, but he is in some way receiving orders partly via the music, or maybe well, I'm... Well, yeah. I feel like I didn't follow the plot well here. Well, we also get the very first TARDIS scene. For some reason, Sutek projects himself into the TARDIS. It's never made clear why that is, except for Sarah to be aware that something really horrible is going to happen. Here, though, Dix does something really clever. He brings that organ sound in with it. So it seems like the TARDIS has, I don't know, intercepted that communication somehow. And so when Sarah hears the sound again, she's able to say to the doctor, wait, that's the sound I heard in the TARDIS. And it's like, oh, okay, good. That There's a call back there. This happened in the Planet of Evil when she was feeling that sensation of the monster. Yes. And this also, the organ thing reminded me of, because I think the monster in Planet Evil made a particular noise. And I was like, oh, this is mm -hmm. kind of generating some some atmosphere for this or just kind of a audio slash, you know, reading cue for the, the readers that, oh, you're hearing this organ, get ready for evil stuff. Yeah, the rattling noise yeah. in yeah. Planet of Evil. Yeah, and here we've got the, the organ, <laughs> enormous <laughs> organ that for some reason... That made me think of my favorite moment of the televised story, because when Ahmed is telling Scarman, you know, no, you mustn't go in there, et cetera, et cetera, there are two extras with him. He's the only one that has lines. He has to push the extras out. He is doing the whole, no, 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 and is very terrified and all that. The extras are kind of like, oh, that's our cue. We need to go. One of them looks like Ron Jeremy. <laughs> he has other films to appear in. Yes. <laughs> so I'm sorry. I had to work that in somehow. That's what she said. <laughs> hey, nice. But that always amuses me greatly. But yeah, I think that's the reason why we have that going on. And why it's set in England and the whole nine yards. Now, interesting, Allison, that you should bring up the whole thing about Namin being such a racist stereotype. It's all very Orientalist, I guess. Is the yes, term. it is. And I feel like Jenny gets all the best Orientalism stories. <laughs> <laughs> or is subjected to them, I should say. Well, Elizabeth Sandifer, whose blog I've had you read before, she slams the story horribly for that and it's not going to be the worst defender as it turns out we're going to get worse than this at some point soon but yeah it is that but you know, on the one hand you could say oh it's trying to redo the mummy so that's why it's happening and on the other hand people like him would be treated this way in 1911 but on the other hand it's 1976 and we should be better than that and yeah i mean i still don't look at 76 favorably like <laughs> i think wasn't it only in the 70s that black women got the actual in law chance to vote or i might be misremembering that fact but i i don't know i i just Possibly. more look at it that it's just cheap i'm like you know this isn't necessary they're able to create interesting aspects of all the other characters why can't we make this character why can't we make him interesting in a way that that doesn't rely upon these really really 
worn he's out. He's just a dirty tropes. foreigner. He doesn't have motivations yeah. other yeah. than to be oily. Um, even Sutek for a second. There was some point where he was, you know, I have been impotently trapped for all these years. I need to get out. And I, for one second, felt actually kind of bad for him. That would really suck if you were kind of an <laughs> eternal being and you were just trapped forever. Even if you have a totally evil agenda, I felt his desperation there very genuinely. And this poor character doesn't even get that. He's just a walking stereotype shill of evil. <laughs> and on screen, he's also dead by the end of episode one. <laughs> So, As are so at they least all. they dispatch it quickly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, is that talk about uncomfortable combinations where you can kind of get away with one or the other. Like on the one hand, he's feminized. On the other hand, he's extremely <laughs> strong. He is both very aggressive, and at the end of the scene where he dies, he's extremely debased and servile yeah. as well, and shrieking. It doesn't make any sense, does it? Again, the sort of it doesn't set up. I've got to find a new metaphor, but delicate well, work. I, th- I, think the, I think the book actually sets it up better than the televised version, because to be honest, you're right. All these years I've been laboring under the assumption that Mamine was working faithfully for Sutek when actually, no, there is, there's a big old con going on there for sure. How about the rest of it, especially the Doctor and Sarah, because the Doctor is very different in the story and only for the story. But it's it's interesting. What did we think of their yeah. interactions in this? I thought they had some nice banter, humor. Mm-hmm. I like the scene where Sarah feels obligated to apologize for him. Oh. You know, Lawrence is asking, "Who are you anyway?" And like Sarah, you know, feels that politeness and etiquette dictates that she answer because the doctor is just yes. ignoring him, and you know, she she gives him some sort of brief rundown. He says, "You know, this is all utterly preposterous, Miss Smith." Yes, it is, isn't it? Agreed Sarah. Yeah, I thought that was hilarious. Sorry. Who are you? Well, I'm Sarah Jane Smith. I'm a journalist. Journalist? Uh Uh-huh. Who is your companion? My companion? Oh, that's just the doctor. No. We travel in time, Mr. Scarman. I'm really from 1980. That is utterly preposterous, Miss Smith. Yes. Sorry. She's probably quite used to having to explain to people, well, we travel in time and space. Oh, you're not going to believe that. Never mind. <laughs> She's gotten to be an old hand at this sort of thing. I, I like the, the sort of banter when they're dealing with the explosive and the doctor saying it, it's sweating, the extremely careful, even like a sneeze can set Eesh. it off. And how would he ordinarily use this? Does he have some ignitions or fuses? Well, maybe he just sneezes <laughs> on it. Maybe that's how he uses it. So they had, they had some, I thought, some nice, easy conversational jokey moments that that worked well oh that scene's even better on screen because she tosses the box to him (laughs) (laughs) and he actually cries out and she's like what's the matter and he explains and are there any fuses no perhaps he sneezed (laughs) it's it's brilliant the way the two work off of each other in this it's very much a classic fourth doctor sarah story and sarah gets a lot to do in this yeah, she like, she, you know, <laughs> shoots the the explosive. Even if it didn't work in that moment, she did that. She wants a gun earlier. The doctor goes off, and and her and Lawrence go. Don't worry about it. No, I think we'd rather have a gun. <laughs> and they like <laughs> take their guns. Yeah, I don't like guns. He leaves. Oh, I like them. So bring that along. Yeah. <laughs> so. 
I, I felt this about Sarah in, in the Planet of Evil, and I was like, oh, yeah, once again, she's totally capable. And there were, again, a lot of nice moments between her and the Doctor. I am i didn't go back and check my notes. I'm really sure, though, that in Planet of Evil, when he leaves to go into the, the evil lake, that he also touches her cheek. I think that's a repeated gesture, which I think is really sweet. Yeah. It's just a, a tenderness that we don't often see from the Doctor. And there's the moment at the beginning where he is down because of the brigadier and the zygons that she uses as empathy to think about oh what what must the doctor be feeling right now and she does it there and then she does it i think again later where she's just kind of understanding him and when he seems like he's brushing off all the death that has occurred and she realizes oh no he's just trying to to put a brave kind of face on it and do what what must be done and then that moment gets echoed in the epilogue when we kind of get a return on investment there. And she, oh yeah, these people did die, but now I can go out and have a, an earth that looks like an earth. I really love that moment. That's not really a doctor and Sarah moment, but I guess it is that he doesn't just tell her, hey bitch, we got to do this. So buck up. He <laughs> shows her, he's like, no, let me take you and show you this decimated planet. And then she gets to make that decision. She gets to see it yes. and then decide for herself. Oh shit. Like this is true. I, I don't like how many people have died and what we have to do, but I guess you're right. I am now deciding this of my own free will. He's not just taking her along and ordering her around. That I thought was an important moment that then they get to echo later in that epilogue. I'm surprised it hasn't come up sooner because there have been plenty of stories where there's been lots of death and lots of things that Sarah's having to deal with that she doesn't ever question whether or not uh, what they're doing is going to change the future. Mm-hmm. But in this story, specifically with her being back on Earth, back in England, uh, 60 years ahead of her own time, does she really realize, oh, wait, the things that we do can affect my future? Well, and has the doctor ever before advised a human to consider what they're doing and what is to the human the past that would affect their future because he shows her a dead earth yeah he does and and i was i was trying to remember if there was ever a conversation like that before where he the, the companions we've seen are from the 19th or 20th century i'm trying to remember if there's a story where he's advised a 19th or 20th century human in what is to them the past to consider whether or not they might destroy the future earth that they know not since the aztecs and that's a hartnell story where Barbara is specifically trying to save the Aztecs by getting rid of human sacrifice before Cortez comes along, and or whoever it was that comes along. And the doctor says, you can't rewrite history, not one line. When actually, yes, she can, and that's exactly what he's trying to keep her from doing, because something hmm. like this can happen. But you're right, this is one of the first times that this show actually addresses that sort of thing. But it also, in doing so, opens up two big old plot holes. And I have to address those because our listeners are going to expect me to because this is the story that is the start of the unit dating controversy. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, let's unpack this. Um, Which I still can't wrap my head around. Okay. But... <laughs> well, it's because... And the things that you're talking about so far as plot holes, I thought of as things that just weren't explained, but then I expected them there to be reveals and payoffs at the end, and there weren't. And this was one of them. Even if there's a plot hole I didn't notice, I just expected there to be some significance at the end that they were in the old unit building. It just never came up again. Well, that's just it. This story only has one thing to do with unit, and that is that the Priory stands on the site where the unit headquarters will be. 
That's the only link. However, <laughs> Dix knows what's going on by now with this story, I imagine, because in the book, any time that Sarah refers to having traveled from the future, she doesn't name the year. On screen, she names the year twice. She specifically says, I can't be. I'm from 1980. And it had always been said that the unit stories were roughly five years ahead of whatever the date of transmission was. So it's 1975 when this is being mm. made. She's from 1980. Which, okay. on the face of it, is not a problem. Skip forward to 1983, and we get a story that is set during the Queen's Jubilee, uh, Silver Jubilee, I believe it is. And that has a very specific date, which, if I remember correctly, is 1977. <laughs> I mean, in all fairness, she's had a lot of more jubilees than most people do. Yes. Well, here's the problem. Let me just give you the rough outlines, because by the time we get to that 1983 story, we're going to have to talk about this all over again. <sighs> That story establishes that the Brigadier leaves Unit 1977, and they've just said that Sarah's from 1980. There's a bit of a problem there. So, uh... Still in an era of disposable entertainment where it's very hard for people to go back and check the tapes. Ah, it's already in reruns around the world, though, right? That is the problem. That is the big problem. Also, that 1983 story is produced during a time when the producer is ridiculously worried about continuity and trying to make it good for the fans. Mm. So this is something that they should have been able to... Well, the whole reason is because the former companion that they wanted for that story wasn't available, so they made it the Brigadier, not thinking it through. We didn't think it through! And thus we have the unit controversy because of two lines from this story, which luckily are not in the novelization. That plot hole doesn't exist in the novelization. The other plot hole is this. Since when is the Doctor able to pilot the TARDIS with such accuracy that he can get to a particular time and place, even if it's just for a side trip? <laughs> I've come to yeah. accept that as something that just ebbs and flows with the story, that sometimes he's basically a drunk driver with the Tesla on auto, <laughs> <laughs> and then sometimes he's this incredible... Precision navigator, and then I just let that wash over me either way. Yeah, I think it's the exigencies of the plot. They they have to have him do precision piloting to 1980 to show Sarah what would happen if they left then. I thought it wasn't a matter of his skill so much as there is something in the TARDIS that sort of runs in cycles of how how linked to its controls is is not quite the right term, but how controllable it is. And that he never knows quite how well he's going to be able to control it. Well, we do know from the new series that the TARDIS is sentient enough that she takes the Doctor, not where he wants to go, but where he needs to go. You know, since we're talking with mouths, not really an opportunity that comes along very often. I just want to say, you know, you have never been very reliable. I do have. You didn't always take me where I wanted to go. No, but I always took you where you needed to go. So this is one of those instances where I suspect he doesn't even think about it. He programs the TARDIS. The TARDIS says, yes, we need to show her. They show her and then they go back. Yeah, but that's not so much a plot hole as just a little wrinkle 
but I think you're right. We just need to move on from it. But it is, you're right. It is interesting that that this is the story where it's made very clear. And the first time that Sarah has ever gone into the Earth's past and seen that, oh, yeah, my, my steps in the past can change the future. Yes, point of order past me. That would ignore the fact that in her very first story, she traveled into Earth's past, and the entire plot revolved around what could happen if history was changed back then. But never mind. Continue. Well, before we've seen the Doctor being kind of cagey about it, like what the effects can be, like you, you know, describing him telling Barbara, oh, you can't change the future. What he really means is you better not choose to try to change the future. He seems much more forthright here about the possibility of changing the future or failing to change the future. And that, that seemed new mm-hmm. to sort of let the human companion in on the mechanics of what could happen. Yeah, that's true. It's also... One of the first stories where we see the Doctor kind of going through a midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's thinking, I really have better things to do than chase after the Brigadier. And yet by the end of the story, he's kind of got a renewed lease on what he's meant to do. So there is that. And I think Dix manages to capture that. Hartnell Doctor had his sort of heart-to-heart chat with Homer. And there have been... I, I seem to remember Hartnell Doctor having two or three sort of reveries where he thinks about I guess it's more him thinking about mortality though yeah purpose and those are on the books yeah well I mean it's here in the book too obviously but those are written by people later who are not dicks who <laughs> are <laughs> you didn't have to live with them you don't know well you never know that's true <laughs> but they're writing in the 80s and they're trying to flesh out that first doctor too so is he having a sort of an odd an on-screen midlife crisis in this yeah. story? Yeah, because okay. at the very beginning, he's being moody, and Sarah makes a joke about, well, as long as Albert didn't wear this dress. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he gives her his age, and she says, oh, that close to middle age, then. And he gets stroppy about it. <laughs> a lovely statement in here, though. Earth isn't my home. I'm a time lord, not a human being, and I walk in eternity. Yeah, exactly. And... She even realizes, oh, this is the first time she's ever heard him refer to previous companions because yeah. she's wearing Victoria's dress mm-hmm. and realizes, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm only one in a long line. This is one small portion of his life that he's with me right now, which is sets it up for school reunion, doesn't it? Because Rose is going to have that exact same realization about the 10th Doctor when she meets Sarah Jane and realizes, hey, he left her behind, so what's going to happen when he leaves me behind? How many of us have there been travelling with you? Does it matter? Yeah, it does, if I'm just the latest in a long line. As opposed to what? I thought you and me were... I obviously got it wrong. I've been to the year five billion, right? But this... Now this is really seeing the future. You just leave us behind. Is that what you're going to do to me? No, not to you. But Sarah Jane, you were that close to her once, and now you never even mention her. Why not? I don't age. I regenerate. But humans decay. You wither and you die. Imagine watching that happen to someone that you... What, Doctor? 
you can spend the rest of your life with me. But I can't spend the rest of mine with you. I have to live on. Alone. I'm a Time Lord. Oh, I know you're a Time Lord. You don't understand the implications. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Well, I was trying to remember if there was a time... And you have a knowledge of what happened on screen versus just in the novels, like you were just talking about. There was a time when a doctor has talked about a companion who was a previous doctor's companion. And I want to say that maybe Pertwee Doctor mentioned Susan? Yep, yep. In Planet of the Daleks, he has to remind the Thals that he is the doctor. And he says, in your legends, the doctor would have traveled with Ian, Barbara, and Susan. And no weight is given to that at all in the book. He just says their names as if they're just schmucks that he traveled around <laughs> yeah, with. Yeah, it's, it's verifying his identity, not not him giving much of a thought to them. <laughs> giving thought to the fact that he just named his granddaughter. So yeah, it seems like that should have had more weight. This one at least has some verifiable weight to it. That the doctor is, yeah, I remember Victoria. She She was very sweet. Or specifically, always so frightened, always trying so hard to be brave, which I was wondering if that was on screen or Dick's commentary on always having screams written into the script. Yes, I, I, I think that's a very good commentary on the character of Victoria, because I, I, I know we didn't end up giving her much credit because she was written as such a screamer. But yeah, that's a good description of Victoria's character. But I felt like I, I tend to adhere to the sort of absurd theory that grants fictional characters the right to sort of independent agency and a right to better scripts so <laughs> I, I did i did have an idea that victoria was fighting her creators in some way <laughs> that there was a much more interesting character under there who was always on the verge of being developed and then vicky also was always in a beginning stage of being developed but it never went further and i think maybe we saw something more satisfying with Joe and are seeing something more satisfying with Sarah here where that next stage is being reached. Right, exactly that. But you've actually got writers that are trying to flesh out the companions a bit more. Or you have the case of actresses like Maureen O'Brien, who's a much better actress than Vicky as a character. (laughs) So you have that push and pull going on. And then you have Liz Sladen, who is not only an excellent actress, but she's playing a pretty damn good character as well. So that's a lot of what's going on here, and that's why this is looked at as such a classic story. Probably because on screen it really is a classic story, and it makes you ignore a lot of issues with it. They're harder to ignore when you come to the page, though. Speaking of which... What did we not like about this book? Because I got the impression that it wasn't a hit with everybody. The only major qualms that I have about it are, again, kind of a missing atmosphere um, from things that read in the past and what I kind of turned as cheap shots at at these characters um, as being exotic and, and things like that. It's just, you know, it's just cheap. It's boring. It's not necessary. And it's also offensive. Um <laughs> So Mm -hmm. that sucks. But uh, and I I also kind of wanted, you know, we finally get to meet Sutek. Um, We especially in the the Planet of Evil. And I don't know, I guess it's just lucky that I read that one last. because I feel like there's a lot of useful comparisons to be made between certain choices in each of these books. 
when the doctor travels through the the lake thing to commune with the spirit or being of the planet, it's a very big deal transformative moment where we don't even, we pointed out, I think, in that conversation, we don't even get to hear what that being sounds like. It's something we have to imagine. It's a, a big deal moment. And here, when the doctor also, we, we know that his life is at stake and uh, there are some scary moments when Sutek is kind of Cruciatus cursing him. I, Sutek reminded me of Voldemort a lot. He's got like the green light and <laughs> kind of evil and shit. But he, I wanted that moment, I think, to be scarier or to be a bigger deal in some way than just some guy on a throne. <laughs> I was expecting a little bit more. Maybe if he expanded to fill a tunnel in the tube. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you missed that um, novel. Yes, there was uh, a God. quite phallic villain in the loose in the subway system. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, he he left me a little a little ho hum. You know, Sutek, like he's supposed to be this big deal, and he. I mean, I knew why he was supposed to be a big deal. They they were telling us why, but they didn't show us why. So mm. I felt that that mm-hmm. could have been um, a little bit, you know, maxed up. Make him scarier, make it darker, make it um, more more menacing somehow, um, mm. besides from that strange organ music. But other than that, I, I didn't have too many things that drove me crazy about this one, which I don't know if that speaks to the skill of how this was handled or just kind of my ultimately, I'm not going to call them low. I think I'll call them leisurely expectations for these books. <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, I don't expect them to be the next American novel, um, but or American is not a good limit anymore. I don't expect them to be the next amazing novel. Uh, right. So I, I felt on the the grand scale of them, but like this this one's pretty good. Okay, Dalton. One of the things that bugged me that I just couldn't really wrap my head around was why was Sutek left in a tomb that had video screens and technology? Yeah. Wi-Fi. And things for him to to utilize to escape, you know? Mm. I I think it all goes back to that prologue where Dix sets it up to show us that Horace didn't want to be just as bad as Sutek. So he gives him the hope of escape. He gives him all sorts of good books to read. He gives him Wikipedia, which he calls up to look up the Doctor's home planet, even though he doesn't know the name of it for some reason and yet he knows who the time lords are so go figure. which could have been interesting if the idea was to imprison him but maybe it would be too cruel to isolate him entirely so maybe he was given tools that would allow him to observe and in some ways experience the universe outside so yeah. he doesn't go nuts but it's just mm. like dalton says suddenly he has a complete working console of communications tools and yeah. yeah, he has everything he needs to escape. So you're right. There is that setup. Of course, looking at it that way, you could say, well, if he isn't given those tools to escape, then we don't have a story. Yeah. But yeah, that's a very good point. And I mean, and we're, and we're told that he's been in there for at least 7,000 years. Yeah. <laughs> so in 7,000 years, nobody else came upon this place. He was not able to use his psychic abilities to contact anybody else. I thought that was the thing that was different. The, the means to escape was that the archaeologist had managed to had enter to, the tomb. Okay, that yeah. Previously, the priests had been able to conceal it well enough yeah. that no one had been able to do that. I thought that the archaeologist physically entering the chamber was the link and the, the escape means. No, you're right. That, that kind of started everything. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So Namin and his ancestors, who were part of this cult, were probably keeping it well hidden, but somehow Scarman managed to find it. And if you think about it, that's exactly how these stories always start, isn't it? It's always some hidden pyramid or it's some hidden mummy and the damn fool has to bring it back to England where it's going to wreak havoc and he's going to end up dying as a result, which happens here as well. Yeah. Yeah. Which I guess even in most real tombs, even when uh, English archaeologists and things got in, they realized that a, a number of tombs had already been broken into by grave robbers and and people in the past. So, yes. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, my, minor things. O- overall, I actually really did like the book. Okay. <laughs> That's why I've been kind of quiet. Oh, for heaven's sake. Well, we didn't want you to be quiet because you we liked it. We'll speak up and overcome our, our surly negativism. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, what... What things did you like, Dalton? I did like the the Doctor and Sarah's kind of banter, uh, the back and forth. It does feel different, though. Yeah. And you do get this kind of sullen attitude from the Doctor feeling out of place on Earth, even though we do have him talking about how much he likes humans and how fascinated he is by them. Um, the fact that it gets brought up, you know, he's trying to protect Sarah Jane and, you know, he doesn't want Sutek to know right. that she's someone that's traveled with him, someone that he has history with. You know, he wants Sutek to just think Sarah Jane's just another human, mm-hmm. one of the billions of people habitating the planet. So the fact that, that he does start to feel kind of this attitude about Earth is weird. Yeah, um, it's, it's a mixture of this alien coldness that Tom Baker does very well, but it's mm-hmm. mixed with this genuine affection for earth and humans but particularly for sarah jane this is one of the first stories where the menace or the villain is going to be able to threaten sarah jane's life and that's going to get the doctor to do something that he wouldn't normally do yeah and we'll see that come up again i mean this is something that has happened quite often in doctor who but actually i'm not sure it has i'm trying to think of other instances where the companion's life has been threatened and the doctor's been forced to do something he didn't want to do. And I'm drawing a blank. I feel like this has happened. I'm sure it has. But I'm not calling up the proper instance. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure our listeners will let us know. I feel like there have been previous hostage situations. Yeah. But not quite like this. Not quite like this, where the doctor is deliberately trying to mislead the villain into thinking, oh, she's, you know, this will come in up in a later story. She's just a friend. No, she's more than that. She's actually the person that he travels with, and therefore, as he'll describe her in a later story quite charmingly, she's my best friend. Mm. Which is lovely. Yeah. And she really is in the story, because who the fuck else would put up with him when he's in this goddamn mood? And even even later, kind of the bond you get between the Doctor and Sarah is explored further whenever Sarah thinks that the Doctor's been killed. Yes. And there's the line that says, such was Sarah's misery that her own fate hardly interested her. Oh, yeah. She, she is so focused on the fact that the Doctor is dead that she doesn't care if she dies. She doesn't care what happens to her past that point. Yeah, I found that moment really heartbreaking. I it was yeah. I was just like, damn, this story is dark. Everyone, <laughs> like some characters that we really got to care about 
died a lot. And now the doctor, you know, I mean, of course, I know he's not dead, but like seemingly he's yeah. dead and we're seeing this character really mourn him. And I was just like, wow, this is a this one's a sad book. And his response is, you're soaking my shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was nice that that was not dragged out because we obviously we know he's not going to be actually killed in any meaningful long-term way in the middle of the story that they had that moment but don't try to make it a lazy cliffhanger yeah and yet sarah doesn't know it and it's nice to bring that out i thought that worked really well as a character moment for her without condescending to the audience and then he goes back to being brusque with her telling her not to touch anything when she points out that uh he had to deal with something like this on the planet of the excellence which is a reference to a John Pertwee story that she was in. I do want to address one more thing before we go to anything else. Does anyone feel like when they get to Mars and they get to the puzzles, the story kind of loses something? You know, that happens a lot with these stories. I feel like almost every single time, it's kind of the last twist in the maze. We didn't really need this. It just sort of dragged out in in some way. Again, I get it that we want to go to Mars because we want to have that that conceit at the end. And I guess they established that this stuff is on Mars. And that makes sense if these were aliens and all of that. But yeah, it, it definitely, to me, lost some steam by that point. I mean, at least they could have made it more interesting. I thought at this point, well, these are Martian pyramids or something. Maybe that'll be interesting. But it really wasn't. It was like, okay, we're in a room without any doors. And he's like, of course, there's a door, you idiot. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, that wasn't that interesting either. Yeah. Right. Well, what do I have written down is blah, 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 time tunnel, blah, 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 switch puzzle. Well, I don't mind that they're absurd, but usually I find the set pieces very atmospheric and entertaining. And it's fine with me if they don't necessarily hold water. Like, I'm, I am one of the only people I feel like of my age who actually liked the second Star Wars prequel because I liked the set pieces. I liked the chase through the, the manufacturing facility at the beginning and the underwater kingdom and that sort of thing. No, it wasn't a good story, but it had some very nice set pieces and chases. And here I just found them unengaging. Mm-hmm. You know, I could see that. So I didn't entirely understand why, but more imp- it, it worked the way it did. But more importantly, I wasn't interested in why it worked the way it did because... <laughs> Looking for plot holes does involve a certain amount of interest and passion Mm. and emotional (laughs) involvement. And here it was more puzzlement, like, wait, what did he die of in the tunnel, old age, but I thought he was eternal, just uh, whatever. So I guess I wasn't intrigued by the things that didn't add up. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) now that I look at my list, I actually have a lot of things that I enjoy. They were just smaller moments, not the overall. Normally there are smaller things that annoy me, but overall I I like some of the atmospheric things in the story here. Overall it's very meh, but there are individual things that I enjoyed. Let's go into those smaller moments then before going to Goodreads. What moments did you like most from this book? I think I've talked about, you know, we've talked about character moments that we liked with Sarah, but just some moments like uh, you know there's you know the trope the barbarian to the gate here i like that we had you know the mummies are battering the sitting room door (laughs) and (laughs) other humorous little turns of phrase oh i wanted to ask the english professors is scientific romance a term for sci-fi is that unique to this book or is that a term people use because i loved it nope that is the way they would have described hg wells's books back in the day I think that should be revived. It's just common parlance. 
Yeah, uh, scientific romance would have been the term they would have used before sci-fi was coined by Hugo Gernsback. Yeah, I think that's right. That sounds right. I, I thought everything with Ernie was delightful. His uh, <laughs> volunteer gamekeeping and uh, his uh, sort of self-righteous delusions that he's really uh, controlling the population. Yes. <laughs> Hunting the wabbits. I'm helping them out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, educating the young people on how to hunt on the land that their parents actually have. No, I know, Ro, how hilarious would it be if you're just this erstwhile gamekeeper and you go to one of your traps and there's a legit mummy robot caught in it and you'd be like, what the fuck? I said, I would read a whole spinoff of Ernie versus the mummies. I thought he was hilarious and I just really liked him. And I, I have written down here like, no, with multiple O's, Ernie, R.I.P. I just, I really lament the loss of Ernie. Holy so I actually appreciated he was mentioned at the end because it's the sort of character who normally dies in a Dick's prologue and then we never hear of again. Well, actually, we might hear of referenced again, but usually the Doctor and Companion don't meet that person who dies. So they actually did notice and feel badly that he died was, was kind of a nice thing in the epilogue. Yeah. Identify yourself plaything of Sudet. Yes. You would have had a very different reaction to his death if you'd seen it on screen, though. Uh -oh. I'm guessing it was somewhat... <laughs> tastelessly comedic um uh, yes actually because it's as opposed to tastefully comedic well in in the book in the book it's described as the two mummies ram together and crush him between them yeah on screen well i i i point you to the illustration of the mummy on the cover because i referenced this earlier and how its chest is shaped now Imagine two mummies in these costumes <laughs> and how they would go about crushing someone. Is it someone... like a horse where one's the backside and one's the front side? No. It is death by group hug. <laughs> yeah. Because his neck is crushed between the yeah. planes of their chests coming. They just kind of nuzzle up to him with his neck between them okay oh I, I was God. having trouble visualizing what was being what was being described so i guess that was they described it pretty well it is the most ridiculous thing i mean i wanted <laughs> to think maybe it was a noble death oh he tricked them into running into each other so not only although he has been crushed maybe the mummies killed each other by running into each other but i don't oh. actually think but that dun, was dun, what dun, 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 dun. all he had to do was duck at the last minute and I know, he, he was saved. so fucking close, Ernie. Oh, that's the tragedy. Yeah, some other things that I really liked. At one point, the doctor uses his scarf as a tape measure, which I thought was amusing. Yes. Like he, there's some sort of universal measurement unit that he has that is like coming from his scarf. Uh, I really like that idea. What For a puzzle do? that doesn't even need it, as it turns out. Yeah, there's a moment where Lawrence is mourning his brother. He's sitting there looking at the photograph of them that I was like, oh, that's sad. And I really for like a hot second thought, oh, he's going to turn his brother back. He And there was that moment where it seemed there was still some sort of residual yeah. bit of memory in, in the, the cadaver, as it's called, the human cadaver, which right. I was like, ouch. Um, yeah. And then he got killed, and I was like, oh, shit. Like, well, like they were, I thought they were actually prefiguring some kind of coming to terms between Set and Osiris. That... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, I, oh, yeah. yeah. 
I was excited about that for a moment. But and again, I guess I'm not really mad at it because they just use that to crush me further in this very sad, sad book. <laughs> but that I, I really do like. Oh, I like how the I, one thing I did like about Sutek was his burningness. He has these charred feet or when the his servant is holding people, he burns them with his burning hands. Oh, that's kind of cool. Like, I wish that they had done a bit more of that. Yeah. Because that was menacing and, and visual, you know, something scary. Oh, I liked how they're... Who, who was saying this? I, maybe it was Ernie that he was... He mentioned Collins. Oh, old Collins prowling around. And at this point, Collins has already died. And we know that as the reader, but Ernie doesn't. Yeah. That I thought that that was an interesting moment just to indicate voice. Oh, here's what, what Ernie would have thought about Collins that in, in life, Collins was kind of a meddling, you know, butler probably chasing him off the land. So Ernie is, oh, good, that old that old fool is not around. But we're like, oh, no, Collins is already dead. And now we're worried about Ernie because we know, you know, the bad things that are waiting for him. So there's just so mm-hmm. many little smart, smartly written <laughs> moments in this that, again, I think speak to Dix's strength as a writer, which is just nice to see because it didn't have to be this good. We know that there are tons and tons of these books that, you know, sorry, but they're not that good. <laughs> and they're still sold and kids bought them and we made our money, I guess, or whatever. But this is really good. Like there's it's a writer who cares and that makes me happy to see you as a, a writer and a devourer of fiction. Okay. Anything else? The bit with the doctor being wrapped up like a mummy. <laughs> and, the, and the fact that the bandages are some kind of armor, <laughs> I guess, is the best way to describe it. Yes. To protect the robots. From but, corrosion. But yeah, the, the doctor wrapping up as one and Marcus not realizing that he's not a robot by handing him the coordinates and just saying, go put this in the rocket. And he just goes and throws it. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and funny story behind that. Tom Baker actually did dress up as the mummy for the location shoot. Hated the costume, refused to put it on for the studio scenes. So he stood off camera while the extra was dressed as the mummy and did his lines through his mouth muffled like this. So it sounded oh like he was <laughs> Because in the location uh. <laughs> scenes, you can hear him perfectly well. Hurry up. I am hurrying. It doesn't have to be perfect. I shall mingle with the mummies, but I shan't linger. Okay, that'll have to do. How do I look? It must have been a nasty accident. Don't provoke me. It's it's uh, crazy. Yeah, just just a little a fu- a funny bit, you know, kind of a little bit of a personality you, you see coming from the doctor there. Yeah, must have been a terrible accident. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there are lots of lovely touches like that. So, shall we go to Goodreads? Yes. Okay. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.86, which is one of the higher rated books we've seen. Yeah. Yeah. Really? The reviews from our Goodreads group have, again, been edited for length. Sorry, guys, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Damon gives a very short review of 3.5 stars, saying a good read, fairly faithful to the TV show, and I enjoyed the epilogue. Yes, I think we all did. 
Our Patreon Dave Davis gives it four stars and says, I really didn't expect to enjoy this book, not because of any problems, of which there are a few, but because I like the televised version so much. One problem with both versions is a degree of casual racism. As I write this, a row is brewing over a tweet made by a bigoted Northern Irish member of the House of Lords in which he asks what happens if Biden moves on and the Indian becomes president, who then becomes vice president, punctuation his. That he named Biden and not Harris is an obvious example of racism, and he's rightly been dogpiled over it, but it's curious that this happened just after I read this book. The character of Damin is referred to as the Egyptian. It wouldn't be so bad if it was by one of the local yokels from 1911. It would add a certain verisimilitude, as that dismissive attitude towards foreigners was typical of the British, and especially the English public school alumni of the time. Here, however, it's the doctor who says it, and I can't help thinking that he'd know better. Another example of racism when Marcus calls one of the workers, Ahmed, a superstitious savage, is in keeping with the character, though it does undermine any sympathy I may have felt for him for what happens next. Some of the jokes are gone, but mostly because they'd interrupt the flow of new exposition, or because they wouldn't work in prose, such as Tom Baker's silly walk outside the Priory to avoid being seen by its occupants, or the Marx Brothers-style about-turn performed by Baker and Sladen inside the Pyramid of Mars when they were nearly discovered, a routine they apparently introduced without the director's permission, but it was too late to reshoot. The prologue is pretty good, and the epilogue ties things up nicely without contradicting anything on the screen. All in all, an enjoyable read, with most of the changes having the same feel as the episodes, and unless I missed it again, Sarah didn't faint. No, she didn't. You're right. Yes. And finally, our Patreon, James Sumnall, also gives it 3.5 stars and says, Dave's Sarah Faintometer, zero. (laughs) She finally got that uh, blood pressure problem looked after. Yes, (laughs) one of Dick's better novelizations, although he's working from pretty good source material. Plus points, prologue scene setting is very emotive of the Egyptology craze of the early 20th century. The Eric von Däniken, Däniken, I don't, I've never known how to pronounce that. The Eric von Däniken ancient aliens influence is quite heavily felt. There's some nice humor shared between the Doctor and Sarah earlier on too. Combined with the future history, Desolation brings about some nice characterization for the two themes. Namin's character is unusually strong for an ethnic minority role from this era too, which is pleasing to see. Negative points? The Doctor describes Namin as having a foreign accent. Foreign to who? The Doctor? This is lazy writing from Dix and a little crass. Very enjoyable book overall with some lovely dialogue, such as, In my presence you are an ant, a termite. Abase yourself, you groveling insect. James's cat looks on bemused. Yes. So, out of five stars, what would you give this? Jenny, what would you give this out of five stars? You know, see, I I struggle with, yeah, it does, it does have, like, it's being held back a bit by the the laziness of of stereotype. And I always struggle with, do we want to kind of, not condone, but hold that as part of of the times or do we want to continue to say like no that's unacceptable we need to do better i i can say it's one of the better ones that i've read i i had it down for a 4.5 maybe i'll reduce that to a four out of five uh just 
on the basis of that, because I want to continue to, you know, push writers and readers listening to this to, to write better and demand better from kind of laziness that sneaks in when we're, we're not thinking as clearly as we could. Uh, right. But I do think that the writing still was exceptional and there's so many um, really nice moments that are, are praiseworthy and that other people should duplicate, even if they shouldn't duplicate all of it. All right. Allison? I feel like Jenny's gotten kind of a bad sample of the ones that we've read <laughs> in the last three. And seriously, like, I feel like there are several that we've read that based on what you said today, you would have enjoyed. And then instead you've been served some cold mashed potatoes and others. I always feel self-conscious if I like one of the books that other people don't like, hey, perhaps I'm tasteless. And then I feel like the Grinch if <laughs> I dislike one that other people enjoy, but I'm going to Grinch it up tonight. And the main reason is very subjective and personal is what I tend to base my overall assessment on is what I find myself thinking about later. And I won't remember this tomorrow is actually the probably the reason I give it a lower rating. But I think in terms of the Orientalism, kind of the interesting joke to me is the statement actually made about one of the Osirians by the doctor. He said he was an Osirian. They just can't help being devious. Mm. And that's not a, a human ethnicity, but it seemed to be the attitude about Namin. But then after Namin dies, when the doctor walks by him, he literally robs his corpse uh, <laughs> by taking his ring. So there is a whole I did not think of telling that. on yourself uh, idea <laughs> in that in that trope as well. So I guess I, I, I found it had many pleasant moments. I think I'll go a two overall. I will end with this quote because I identify with it. The doctor said to have a mobile, intelligent face crowned with a mop of curly brown hair. And I, <laughs> I feel like I resemble the remark. Yeah, I'd say so. And Dalton? I'm going to go 3.75 for this one. Lots of enjoyable character moments. I really enjoyed the, the prologue and the epilogue uh, bits. Yeah, there wasn't too much that really irked me. And, and even the things that did irk me, talking to you guys kind of helped uh, make me less irked. So, so nice. uh, yeah, 3.75 for me. Okay. And as for me, I would agree with Jenny and give it a four out of five because this, I will say, is one of my all-time favorite stories. So coming into this book, I was a little nervous about what Dix would do with the casual racism, and sure enough, he does the casual racism, so I have to take off points for that. But if our measure of a good novelization is how well it captures the original story and whether it improves upon it, this does capture the original story quite well, quite faithfully, and to my mind, does improve upon it. There are some things missing, but they're visual things things you can't really reproduce all that well on the page. He manages to reproduce some of it quite well and even add some things to it. And that prologue and that epilogue, I would love every single Doctor Who novelization to have a prologue and an epilogue. I wish it were had been written into the contract that they had to include one. Mm. <laughs> because this was lovely to me. But yeah, it's got its flaws. But then it, so many of these books do. So... For me, four out of five. So, thank you all. Mm -hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, speaking of things I've been dreading, we discuss Terrence Dick's novelization of The Android Invasion. Mm -hmm. Featuring our special guest, the writer of the wonderful Dark Shadows Everyday blog, Nanny Horn. In the meantime, 
If you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces, like a crazy person. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.